I don't I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all, so that for me is enough. Hi everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And this is number 121. I feel a bit of deja vu all over again because we're celebrating La Undecima Dos. <laughs> El, El Undecimo. The title of this episode is 46 Problems But a Set Ain't One. <laughs> and I hope this isn't a bit premature in jinxing Rafa for the rest of the clay court season, but what he's done to date this year in the two tournaments that he's been back since injury has just been otherworldly. It's, well, it's been a bit surprising for me. I I don't think anyone really knew what to expect when he was coming back from injury. He's only played the three tournaments this year and pulled out of like eight over the end of last year and the beginning of this year. So... I feel like uh, we're we're telling the same story again on this podcast as this as last week. We are. We expected. I think everybody expected him to do well, provided he was healthy. But I don't think anybody expected him to be playing this well, to the point where the statistics are video game like. Right. Over the course of those forty six sets, eleven of them have been breadsticks, six one. Six of them have been bagels. He's lost a total of 96 games from 46 sets, which is an average of 2.09 games lost per set. <laughs> In effect, he's winning these matches 6-2, 6-2 every time. Right. And over the course of that 46 sets, only one time has he been stretched past a 6-4 set. And I believe that was 7-5 against Klezan. It's to the point now where 7-5 seems like a victory. A lot of opponents start really well. Like, the match looks promising. They're pressing Rafa. Dimitrov did that last week. Goffin did that this week. Tsitsipas did and that yeah, in the final. Even in his small way, Tsitsipas did it in the first set in the final. And then it, it just kind of goes away. Rafa grinds them down, defends everything. The backhand is just the bread and butter in the past few tournaments. And on top of that, he's hitting ridiculous angles, ridiculous overheads, ridiculous passing shots. It's not enough for you to stay in the point, but you have to worry about when is the next miracle shot coming from. Because he has, he has them in spades in his repertoire. Mm. Whereas folks could only dream to have one of those, maybe one per, t- per tournament, one every six months. Now, I understand if people are getting a little bored. It's not exactly the most electrifying tennis we've seen over the past two weeks. Rafa's play is something to behold, but where is where is the resistance? Well, we talked about this. We said on the last episode, what was the question I asked you on the last episode? Oh, like if this was the most dominant he has been on the surface? Yes, and your answer was that, well, we're missing so many of the top stars. And that is the main culprit for these lopsided results. Yes, there's Dominic Team. There are a few of the younger guys, the the cusp below guys, who can maybe press him for a bit, a la Goffin, a la Dimitrov. Nishikori. Mm-hmm. But the real cream of the crop guys aren't there. Right. Djokovic has beaten him many times on clay, has won these Masters tournaments, has won Roland Garros. Stan has won Roland Garros. They are just, well, Stan's not playing and Djokovic is just not at that level at the moment. And Federer is is taking a breather for the clay the clay season. In Barcelona, Rafa beats in the first match Carballes Baena, then Guillermo Garcia Lopez, then Clizan in the quarterfinals, Gofa in the semis, and then Tsitsipas in the final, making his first big final on the ATP tour. Mm-hmm. I have to say, Stefanos, he. Obviously has a lot of growing to do. He's still very thin. He looks boyish. But there is so much talent there. Like, there is... Uh, I I think I've fully realized it this week because of the caliber of talent he played and beat. 
And also just the way that he comported himself. His inside-out forehand is a big weapon. The serve is a weapon. I, I just... A lot of things are starting to come together, and I think he's got a really big future. For him, physically is where it looks like he's lacking at the moment. He kind of looks like a baby deer. You know when a baby deer is trying to get its feet oh. on the court? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, the 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 gift going around of him losing his shoe midpoint didn't really help in that regard. Well, that's very Rafa. But I was impressed with uh, just how he handled himself in the final, although... He didn't put up a huge fight, obviously. I mean, he, he put up a fight, he just didn't win. Well, he put up a fight in the first set, but the second set was one-way traffic. But I was impressed with how he handled himself in the trophy presentation, as if he had been there before. His speech was was poised, was articulate. Uh, he seemed genuinely happy to be there. I just got good vibes from it. He beat Diego Schwartzman, Ramos Vignoles. He beat Dominic Team, Carino Busta. That's quite the clay court lineup there that he got through to get to the final. Ramos was the Monte Carlo finalist last year. Dominic Team, obviously, a clay, well, I'm not going to say a clay giant, but he probably should be. They call him the Prince of Clay. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure he's lived up to that title yet. No, I think it's it's given to him because of expectation i don't think it's earned at this point mm. and yes he has the back the back-to-back roland garros semifinals, and he's won a couple tournaments on clay but dominic is he's at a precarious point in his career now i feel where it's a bit stagnant it's not enough to say well oh well the amount of time he needs to set up for his shot the clay helps him and that's why he's better on clay and oh he goes for broke too much too often. You know, these are the common refrains, and those two things might be true, but he should still be able to find other ways to work his way through matches in spite of those, I feel, at this point. I think like you have yeah. enough experience There's... and have played a lot of these guys enough to where in a sport where matchups are so important, you should be able to mentally work your way through these matches a bit more, I feel. I think, yeah, there's definitely something going on upstairs with Dominic. I think, I don't know if he has the right team around him. And it's hard for me to say that because I don't know the inner workings of his squad, right? But I feel like they're grinding him into the ground. And and a fresh look might, might help him. This is another trope, right? Yeah, but it, like, it's true. He plays too much, and when he doesn't play well, he goes and plays another tournament, rather than regrouping and, and trying to take a different approach. You've said to me that you're you're given a lot of pause by all the success that Nadal has had this year, in that you kind of want him to lose a set, and you kind of want him to lose a match before Roland Garros. I do. I would take a loss in Madrid or Rome, hopefully not both, but I've said this many times before, I get nervous when say, a team goes into the playoffs undefeated in the regular season. <laughs> you're br- no, you're bringing... Uh, those are team You're sports. bringing the NFL and college basketball. Yes. But Nadal I, and Clay is not that. No, but in so many of his great Roland Garros runs, he had a loss at Rome, I mean, to Tommy Robredo, to, you know, people you wouldn't expect. It's just, it doesn't hurt. And uh, I don't know, I feel like... I don't think that he's someone who buckles under the pressure, but it would maybe take the weight off us <laughs> as fans. What will help Nadal, I feel, is that his play thus far and his match load has been so stress-free through two tournaments mm-hmm. that if he's healthy, the the rest of the way, the road to the Coupe de Mousquetaire isn't as as arduous as it's looked in previous years. But he's probably still fresh as a daisy. He's winning semifinal matches and immediately on court texting Carlos to go book a court, to go practice, (laughs) because he's not fully happy with the way he's playing. And that's because he's only... He's not even playing 20 games on court in these matches. Is it weird that Rafa is playing on a court named after himself in Barcelona? I know this is something that really weirds you out. (laughs) I think you have to understand that mm. these are uncharted territories for an athlete. 
and this is his swing. And so if Barcelona wants to do that, let them do it. It, it is a bit strange, but I'm not weirded out by it like you are. It's not a gripe. Like, it's not something I'm annoyed about. It's just, it's tacky. He's still playing. Like, it's just, it's weird to me. He hasn't lost a match on that court yet since it was named after him. So if it ain't broke. <laughs> All right. I'll look forward to Serena Williams' court at the U.S. Open. Don't hold your breath. Carolina mm-hmm. Pliskova mercifully stopped the Coco train in Stuttgart. Can you imagine Coco wow. speeding around <laughs> California in a Porsche along the coast? <laughs> The WTA ladies really, really wanted to make Van de Klee happen, didn't they? Like, they saw Coco and they were like, you know what? I'm good. I don't even want to win. The number one player in the world, one of the most accomplished players on clay in the past 10 years, Simona Halep, was like, Coco, you, it's, it's all you. Just take it. This was a narrative that was building throughout the week. And honestly, it's paying little attention to the way the surface was playing, to be frank, because <laughs> uh-huh. her opponent in the final, Karolina Pliskova, she's not a clay beast herself. But from the very first ball that was struck at that tournament, we kept hearing about how slippery the surface was. Mm-hmm. And we also heard about it from from Wojniecki's camp, explaining why she prefers to go and play other tournaments rather than Stuttgart, even mm-hmm. though she's made the final there, because although it's a clay court, it plays more slippery, and by extension, more quick. Right. Plus, it's indoors. Um, But this is not to take away from, actually, I hate to do it, but both Colleen and Carolina's play this week. You hate to do it for Carolina as well? No, no, just Coco. Coco has a lot of variety in her game that I think it's overlooked because a lot of tennis Twitter simply despises her. I mean, we have had a few goes at Miss Colleen Vandeway, but I have to give it to her. Like, this is a tennis podcast. We have to give credit where it's due. She has a very deft touch at the net. She does... Except for match point. I know. And it, <laughs> it wasn't great in the final. Like, she did actually lose a lot of points at the net during the final. But she has more variety than you would expect from that kind of one-and-done aggressive power game, right? She's a great doubles player, as we know. And uh, I think it's easy to overlook that the way that she incorporates different spins and slices and actually a similar thing to what Carolina was doing in the final. She beat Sloane Stevens in the first round, 6-1, 6-love. If anybody (laughs) Um, would like to... Do you want to pause on that? to opine or give an analysis or an explanation for that result, have at it. What I got from a lot of people, because I I woke up and saw that scoreline and I asked on Twitter uh, what was going on with Sloan today. Was she injured? And they were like, nope, Sloan just being Sloan. Mm -hmm. We had previously said on a recent podcast that maybe in the wake of winning Miami that Sloan was going to string together some results. She won two matches in Fed Cup that maybe she could turn into this consistent player that even if she wasn't winning huge matches all the time consistently, that she would not have this type of result. And lo and behold, the very next time out, it could scarcely get any worse. (laughs) But stupid us, really, for predicting anything. No, no, no. It was a firm maybe. It wasn't a prediction. I think I was probably on the more, more on the yes side for Sloan. After that, Colleen beats Zygmunt, then she takes out Halep easily, and then she beats Caroline Garcia in the semifinals, who herself was fresh off of beating Maria Sharapova in mm-hmm. the first round. She was flying high. You know the whole fly with Carol, which is uh, her social media thing? Uh-huh. Once upon a time, Colleen was, at the start of her career, known mostly for her results on grass. And what we've seen in the last couple of years, coinciding with her rise into the top 10, her making a slam semifinal, her, well, two slam semifinals at the Australian Open where Venus beat her, and then at the US Open, mm-hmm. those two coming on hard courts and now making a big final on clay 
she has diversified her portfolio. <laughs> As for Pliskova, this is a back-to-back minimum semifinal situation for her on clay events, which is uh, <laughs> unexpected. She won her first tournament of the year. It's her third clay final of her career. She's won two titles now. And she's 4-0 in her last four WTA finals. Her career record is 10-10. and So she has 10 WTA titles from 20 finals. Hmm. Uh, honestly, I will not hear any longer the surprise about Plyshova playing well on clay. Because she was a semifinalist last year at Roland Garros. And I'm just kind of over it. Like, she can play on clay, despite the fact that you think she may not be able to bend her knees or that she's robotic or blah, blah, blah. Not you, specifically. Mm-hmm. But the Plishkobat thing is sort of... It was a non-starter for me. Like, it's was cute. Was it? It's cute, but it's not that funny, you know? It was a non-starter? You weren't yeah. pressed about it two years ago? The robotic At the US thing? Open, you weren't singing those hymns? No, I just <laughs> wasn't really that into her. The fact is that she's one of the cleanest ball strikers in all of tennis. Yeah. And so I don't really care if she bends her knees or not. Uh, (laughs) You know, that's gotten old for me. I think paying attention to her in press, even if you can't be there on site, like paying attention to her answers and how she deals with the press is illuminating because she's actually very charming and she's very funny. She has a really dry sense of humor. It's not all boring, rote answers like a lot of these players. And I think a lot of people perceive her that way, which is surprising. She's just very deadpan. Which which is what is interpreted as well as being part of this Pliskobot thing. Right. But I have to say, like, watching her play in Stuttgart, you saw her use the backhand slice very well. You saw her sort of hit flat forehands, topspin forehands, just mix it up a lot, use all parts of the court very skillfully. And it was it was great to watch. You contrast her delivery in press and with the media with some other folks who shall remain nameless who give the appearance of being effervescent and bubbly and charming (laughs) oh i wonder who you're talking about there isn't a whole lot that's being given Mm -hmm. by way of new material by way of insightful responses you know it's a it's a lot more about the packaging with plishkova Mm. and folks ignoring the substance i feel like the medium is the message yes (laughs) we've paused the recording a couple times Because you've been a little bit displeased with the flow of the episode so far and feeling like kind of lost in the results part of it. Like this is not something you enjoy. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to segue into a see what happened was, which I know is something that you can speak well to and it will (laughs) rile your petty side. Because I'm messy? You are. Like we're, we're, we're talking about results here and you're like, oh my God, when can I get messy? Essentially. Okay. So Grigor Dimitrov, who has been trying to put it together, deal with his shoulder injury, played Rafa well last week, he got into this spat with Pablo Carreño Busta and the chair umpire. Before you continue, this whole business of uh, putting it together, it's something that we've talked about on the podcast and given him credit for. But I feel like at this point, where he's occupied the three to five spot comfortably for the last year... It has to do with him being very advantageous and taking advantage of this vacuum, don't you think? Because if I'm looking at the development of his game, Mm. what has changed for Grigor in the last year? Like, he's been more consistent, but I haven't seen anything by way of breakthrough or Mm. let me feel like, oh my god, like, this dude is number three in the world. Okay. And at this point, I feel like he's... More power to him. Well, I Cash mean, those checks. Take advantage. Get those points. But I don't think we should... Maybe nobody is thinking this way, but to think of Rigor as an elite player, I just don't think it's on. Sadly <laughs> for him. Okay, but that's not even what this is about. I understand. It was just something that came to but me. But 
Okay, but if there are players absent from the game, take advantage and take their place. Mm -hmm. That's what the sport is about. It doesn't matter. Setting the tone for this story that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. he's out here talking to people like he's their daddy (laughs) and that he's some kind of authority and top dog. That's what I'm Uh saying. Befitting of somebody of his ranking. And I'm just saying that maybe he's a little bit too big for his britches. Okay. That's all. So Grigor is playing Pablito. And he hit a serve, Pablo returned it, and then Grigor shanked it into the net. That's what we. That's what the audience saw. The now, audience saw a ball, a serve, Grigor's serve. The first one was a let, so he got another first serve. And a serve that, even on a small computer screen, looked out. Right? It was right. kind of serve that maybe even the people in the crowd, maybe Pablo... Grigor seems to definitely think it was the case, was obviously out. There was no call. Pablo kind of bunts the ball back, a lobbed floating ball at the net. Grigor is in the motion of servant volleying, hitting a swinging volley, which would have been a winner, and he dumps it into the net. Yes. Now, Grigor believes that his own serve was out and that they need to replay the point. Pablo is like, I don't get it. I... I didn't stop the point. I returned it, and then you missed. What What is the issue here? And Papa was fairly silent through the whole thing. He was just ready to move on. Grigor got so mad, so pissy, and was trying to kind of assert his, you know, his manly honor in bitching about this point. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, what is the big deal? If we're going strictly by the rules, by like the letter of the law, you did not stop the point. You thought your own serve was long. You continued to play. Like, and well, then you this missed. Is, well, this is an easy ball. Let me just hit it anyway. Right. Pablo, for, to my mind, clearly thought the ball was out. Had it not gone the way it went, might have challenged it. Well, there's no challenge, but would have mm-hmm. gotten the chair down. But at the point at which Grigor has already hit that swinging volley and it's gone long and a point has been played, it's it's moot, right? Grigor can't then say, well, the serve was out because you played the point as if it, as if, as if it was good because it was called good. Mm-hmm. So Dimitrov interpreted Pablo's posture and movement after he hit that ball as conceding, as assuming that the serve was long. But the thing is, like, he was only mad after he hit the shot. And missed. Why did Grigor continue to play the point if he thought it was done? And listen, it's only one point. And I understand that you were losing. Like, you were well on your way to losing. That is a whole other issue. If you were up one set and a break, would you have reacted the same way? Or are you feeling pressed because you're losing to Pablo? And so what happened after the match? So... Grigor basically like read Pablo the riot act and condescended to him in my mind saying as a man what you did was not okay and I will not forget it as as a man as a man as a man as a power top I will not forget it (laughs) what is that as a man as a human being as a uh, honestly the whole thing really annoyed me because it's simply not that big a deal. And I don't think that Pablo did anything dishonorable. Pablo could have said, well, the ball looked out, honestly. Let me, oh, look, I just looked at the ball. Yeah, it definitely was out. You know, take the point. He doesn't have to do that. He could have, but... He don't got to exactly. do it. Exactly. Like, why would he? Had he conceded the point, we would have said, wow, that was excellent sportsmanship. Kudos. But there is no obligation to do that. And it doesn't make him a bad sport to not do it. I just felt like Grigor's bad side comes out every once in a while. And it's happened on Clay a few times, interestingly. Mm -hmm. Remember against Diego Schwartzman, basically one of Diego's big up-and-coming moments when he won his first title, Grigor's temper flew really bad. And I don't know if any of you all have read this Jezebel story about Reese Witherspoon and her alter ego, Laura, Laura Jean, which is her real name. But do it and get back to me. Because I think Grigor has an alter ego. I don't know what he's called yet. But 
Isn't it Blackheart? Oh, that's good. That is good. Maybe Serena was not wrong. This whole business of as a man, it makes me want to vomit. Like, I will never look at him the same way. It makes me want to kill myself. Because we are men, and are we to have a specific type of honor amongst other men that we don't have with women or anyone else? It's just like, miss me with that. This, this idea that men should be a certain thing wrapped up in this just toxic machismo, right? That's what mm. it is. By extension, then limiting and excluding all other kinds of feelings and behaviors that, that men can't partake in because you can't live up to this idea of what a man is, as said by Grigor Dimitrov. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Okay. On a related note, Grigor's coach, Danny Valverdu, who used to work with Andy Murray, as you know, made a very, I don't know, I guess, as a man, a very honorable, bitchy tweet about Pablo. This is in the coaching news segment because there are quite a few things that happened coaching-related that are worth talking Mm. about on this episode. And for me, Valverdu is (laughs) dark-sided. We've seen this for... A while now, when he's sitting in the box, he does stuff that I don't care for. Namely, that semifinal against Nadal Mm -hmm. at the 2017 Australian Open. Like, that's where it first pinged on my radar. And he does engage in very low-class behaviors. Ironic, isn't it? He's Mm -hmm. out here on Twitter saying that Pablo Carreño Busta is classy for how he behaved. When he's the one who is out here repeatedly being less... Than classy. Mm-hmm. In, so, in, in, in other words, somebody had tweeted, uh, this is what happened. And this is how Pablo reacted or whatever. And then Valverdu, just the one word response, classy. Like, first of all, nobody asked for your opinion. It does not look good when a coach chimes in. Dimitrov looked like the bully in the situation. Just let it go. No, but this is the thing. They don't think they were. Well... I Dimitrov, that. Dimitrov is convinced that he has a higher ground. Mm-hmm. Absolutely convinced. And obviously, Valverdu thinks the same thing. In more positive coaching news, Stan Wawrinka is back with Magnus Norman? Um, what? To me, that reads like there's an end date in sight. Mm. Let's give it a go for a set period of time. Okay. Whether that's a set period of time for the two of them as a pairing or for Stan's career. Mm-hmm. But with Stan being out for this long time and Magnus really not missing out on any playing time because Stan has been out. Right. It's, I don't know. That's that's my take on it. Did you see Patrick Maratoglu this week? No. He was all over the place with Stefanos Tsitsipas taking credit for his success. <laughs> like, listing off all the achievements this week, the timeline that he's been at the Academy, and just how much progress he's made under my watch, mm-hmm. under his eye. <laughs> Blessed be. <laughs> Even if it were the most tangential achievement, tethered oh so tenuously to Patrick's influence, he is going to take full credit. <laughs> He's going to take it. To be fair, Stefanos does train at Patrick's Academy. Yes, he does. Mm-hmm. But we know that Patrick is a showboater the and ego will always is, <laughs> get himself in the mix. The ego is very prominent with this dude. It is. Do you think that Stefanos will have a court named after him shortly at the Maratoglu Academy? Allah and Demari? Yes. Likely not. Really? I mean, unless he goes and wins slams. (laughs) And then the other bit of coaching news, Darren Cahill got himself involved in some Twitter stuff as well. Oh, we're going to talk about that later. Later? Why not now? Well, because it has to do with the Serena interview that we're going to talk about. Jan Tyriak said some very rude shit about Serena Williams Mm -hmm. being overweight and da-da-da. Well, we'll get to that. But specifically for Darren, we can talk about this now. Okay. The Ian Tyriac stuff came to light via uh, Christopher Clary profile piece on Serena, 
which is where all this content is coming from, right? Mm. I don't know where exactly this allegedly happened, where he said this and in what context, but it was the first I'd heard of it. And when I read it, I was like, damn, like this is, this is something. And so at For All Surfaces, quote tweets Clary's tweet about it and says, waits for Simona to be asked about this and say nothing as to not get her Mercedes taken away by Daddy Warbucks. <laughs> So there's a lot of, there's a reference to Jan Tyriac's many, many classic cars, which he mm -hmm. has. Uh, you have to understand the history of Simona not exactly criticizing Romanian men when they say mm -hmm. fucked up stuff. Especially when it came to the whole Fed Cup issue mm -hmm. and Nastasi and the whole boys club of Romanian tennis. Right. Like this is something that she's been asked about in the past and quite frankly has had us feeling extremely disappointed because she did not handle those situations well right to our mind and we've talked about various reasons why that may have been the case but whatever that remains true on our end and that i assume is where uh, this tweet is coming from darren responds and says this is not cool and totally unfair you need to pull your head in this has nothing to do with simona she looks up to serena and has nothing but respect for her your comment is as stupid as his, actually worse. And at, for all the, and at For All Surfaces replies and says, I have no question about Simona's respect for Serena, but feel like she gives soft answers when the Romanian grandpa starts talking this crazy talk. That was the point of my tweet. Mm -hmm. I feel like there is a lot of truth in, in both, in each of their responses. I think they were right? talking about two separate things. They are, because... I think it's clear that Sir Simona has a lot of respect for Serena. They're supposedly friends. I think the issue here is that there's a disconnect that Simona is in a way burdened by the Romanian sports world, by the legends of Romanian sport, Nastase Tiriak, who's this rich, powerful person who she has to sort of kiss the ring. and. She hasn't really answered those questions deftly. No, and part of that too is the equal prize money stuff. Yes. So in a lot of ways, when it comes to these pressing issues in women's tennis, Simona has been found wanting, and now she's number one in the world, mm -hmm. and that's why in this instance she's getting that added scrutiny. Right. So there's a lot of context behind it, but I can understand what Darren's means... Because why should Simona have to answer for this specifically? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I totally understand that side of it. She didn't do anything wrong, <laughs> you know. But I have to say, one of the first things I thought when I saw Terry X comments was, oh, God, Simona's going to be asked about this, and I wonder what she's going to say. And, it was, and it's, not, it's probably not fair, but that's what I thought. And I wasn't optimistic about the response, to be honest. Because I feel like in a lot of ways she feels burdened and and kind of trapped by these powerful men around her. Like, how critical can she be? Yeah, well, she's number one in the world now. Yes, but she's Romanian. Still, like, that's that's her country. She's loyal to it. She grew up with these people, idolizing them probably. I, I don't know. And that the, by the same token, you can get why people will look at this and say, well, others, such as the Williams sisters, mm -hmm. had to fight against shit that they didn't want to have to fight against and blazed a path for other people to have it easier. Venus with equal prize money at Wimbledon, all this other stuff. And they just had to lead. That is very true. And Simona is now in a position when when she was number two, three, four, five, it was different. They're saying now as number one. Like mm -hmm. there's an added responsibility that comes with that, I think. Mm -hmm. And while it might be unfair, and I think Darren is speaking to this issue without acknowledging the context behind it. And I don't know if he's unaware of it or just doesn't think it doesn't apply. But I think that's where the original tweet came from. There was a whole lot more wrapped up into that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Darren's response accounted for that. Right. But I understand why Darren would jump in and defend her. Well, absolutely. I was, surpri I was surprised that he found it. That he actually found the tweet, first of all. I mean, um, you never know who follows who on Twitter. That's true. Like, this yeah. is not a uh, toot my own horn thing, but he follows me. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> he 
<laughs> we're talking about no, actually, I don't. I don't remember how it went, but we were talking about cricket a couple of years ago, oh, okay. or something. And but who'd expect him to be following me? You know, he only follows like five hundred people. Like it's possible mm. he follows this person, right? And I think that's a likely uh, answer for it. Okay, but there's a. I mean, there's a lot of trash talked about Simona and every other top tennis player on Twitter. So you can't answer to all of it. Clearly, this this struck a chord with him. Elsewhere on the clay circuit, you've got. Taylor Townsend and Christopher Eubanks doing big things leading into Roland Garros. Taylor Townsend is by far and away leading the pack when it comes to the singles main draw wild card for the French Open. Mm -hmm. She's up to a career high number 83. And Christopher Eubanks, after making a final of a challenger last week, does one better this week in Mexico, winning his first challenger event. He is up to number 183. He's in the top 200 for the first time. He decided to skip his last year at Georgia Tech and go pro, and it is starting to pay dividends. Uh, You know, it's going to be a long road for anyone, especially for college players, but he's really starting to get the hang of, I think, life on tour, and it's a, a punishing life on the ITF and Challenger circuit. This uh, this Roland Garros wildcard challenge is part of a reciprocal agreement between French Federation and the USTA. And so they have kind of this, it's almost like a playoff series, right? There's a bunch of challengers in the weeks in uh, April and early May that count toward this wildcard challenge. Specifically for the WTA. Mm-hmm. On the men's side, they take into account every tournament that's being played. Right, right. So a lot of the players who have big points from Houston, for example, are not really in the race because they have qualified already. Yeah. So Noah Rubin is currently in the lead on the men's side, followed by Bjorn Fratangelo, who is Madison Keys' boo. And like you said, Taylor Townsend is has taken a big lead to get a wild card. She won Dothan, Alabama, and then she made the semis in Indian Harbor Beach and Charlottesville last week. So for Chris... These results haven't really helped him in terms of the wildcard challenge, but it will help him likely get direct entry into into the French Open qualifying, should he so choose. Right. It's been almost exactly a year since Maria Sharapova came back to the tour after serving a drug ban. She was given entry into Stuttgart uh, after the tournament had had already started, as you know. We joked about her camping out in the bunker until she could. <laughs> Practicing, <laughs> they had special I don't know, courts in the, built in the underground. We wanted to kind of take stock of what the last year has looked like for her since she came back. She was up to a high of just outside the top 40, I believe. And now she's slid back into the 50s after losing her first match in Stuttgart. Because last year she made, what, the semifinal? My memory serves me very correctly. Maria made the semifinals, <laughs> and then Miss Kiki Miladinovic put an end to that situation. Mm-hmm. And that was the first big clapback matchup. <laughs> yes. So for the last 12 months, Maria is 21 and 11. She's, like I said, in the 50s now. Of those, what, 13 tournaments that she's played, nine of them have been due to the benefit of getting a wild card. We spent so much time on this podcast trying to get to the bottom of whether or not those wild cards were deserved. Lots of moralizing over Maria Sharapova in the last 12 months. From those tournaments, she's had to withdraw seven times, including Wimbledon qualifying. She's won one tournament in Tianjin in October. She's made the semifinals three times, including her first match, her first tournament back. So since Stuttgart, her very first tournament back last year, she's advanced to the semifinals twice. Mm. And she's also suffered four first-round defeats, including three successive ones. Her last three yeah, her tournaments last three have been first-round losses, I believe. Doha, Indian Wells, and, and Stuttgart, Stuttgart now. She's played 14 three-set matches and lost half of them, which is what mm-hmm. she's kind of known for. That was the Maria 
shtick, right? That she was one of the most mentally tough players on tour. And that the, be- the biggest evidence that people could give for that was her record in three-set matches. And, oh, well, if you're in a third set against Maria, she's just, you know, that, that fighting spirit. There's no bigger fighter on tour than Maria, mm-hmm. and she's going to come through. That we haven't seen in the last year. Seven and seven does not show that. Right. I feel like I was thinking last week that Maria's comeback was not actually as bad as a lot of people are thinking. I think if you take 2017 as separate than 2018, it looks quite a bit different. So she, you know, she reached the semifinals of Stuttgart. She had that big win over Simona Halep in the first round of the U.S. Open. She made it to the round of 16 there. It seemed like when you get this player on a big stage, she's going to continue to be dangerous. But we get to the Australian Open. Kerber basically destroys her. And she's only five and five on the year. And she's like been you said, injured a lot this yes, year. Yes. But like you said, she's had three successive first round defeats, which when when has that ever happened for Maria Sharapova? She was never ranked 50 before. Mm-hmm. This is her big problem now. She's playing top players in the first round of pretty much every tournament. Right. She had to play Caroline Garcia this time in Stuttgart. And after winning the first set, Maria then loses the next two. Mm-hmm. And I think she's with a new coach now. She parted ways with Sven Grunfeld, and a lot of people raise their eyebrows at that because they had been a very successful pairing. They won Roland Garros in 2014 together. They won a total of seven titles. But you mentioned that fighting spirit, that mental toughness. Her three-set win over Simona Halep in Roland Garros that year is one of really one of the best women's finals we've seen in a while and shows that man when she is feeling herself like there's not much you can do even if she's not even playing well that said her losses this year they've come to osaka kerber garcia and siniakaba those are i I mean those are very good players she's not lost to anybody ranked outside the top 100 she's beating Mm -hmm. the players who on paper, based on her ranking, she's supposed to beat. But the players who are maybe a little bit more seasoned than her, because she's had to stop and start her comeback so much, Mm -hmm. they've been getting the practice of playing tournaments week in, week out. They're more match fit, probably. Sharapova could be fit playing practice, but we know that once you've made it to the the actual match situations, it's a totally different ball game. Mm So Maria's back with Thomas Hogstedt, who she worked with a long time ago. He's also worked with Jeannie Bouchard. I think we talked about this a few months ago, I think, about her partying with Grunfeld could actually be a sign of this one big push, right? Not that she was capitulating, but that she was sort of rejigging the team and telling herself, I want to make this happen or try my best to put my career back together. I don't know how much time I have, but I need to get serious about this because I'm 31 years old, right? And I think that might be something that's going through her mind. You're 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 Miss Cleo. <laughs> you're all up in the player's mind. Somebody's got to step in. Miss Cleo is dearly departed. <laughs> Miss Cleo was also dodging the IRS. Mm-hmm. I think that Sharapova's fans and a lot of us out here assumed that she was going to come back like with a vengeance with something to prove that there would be a few tournament victories some very deep runs at majors and there just weren't you know she won Tianjin she had that huge win over Simona Halep in the first round of the U.S. Open but she just didn't she didn't do kind of what I expected her to do I thought she was going to like silence the haters because that's obviously she was going to win the French Open I was like oh here we go yeah, and no, in fact, I am sort of a pessimist at heart. You are an apocalyptic person. <laughs> you are. I've learned to deal with this. <laughs> but of her nine top 50 wins, Halep is really the only big name there. Mm. There's Sevastova that she's beaten twice, mm. as well as Makarova twice. But then there's Tatiana Maria. There's Peng Shui. There's Mirjana Lucic-Baroni, who's barely won a match in the last year. And Roberta Vinci. Mm -hmm. So it's not like she was beating Naomi Osaka when she was 
ranked in the 40s. Mm-hmm. In fact, Naomi did beat Maria <laughs> during that time as yeah. well. But let's see where uh, the next 12 months see Maria landing. It'll be interesting to compare the first 12 months back to the second 12 months back. We're in a strange place where a lot of the big champions of the past 10 years are... are I don't know. Where are they? They're in their 30s. We don't know if they're injured, if they're suffering crises of confidence. We've got Djokovic, Warinka, Murray, Sharapova all trying to put it together at really what should be the tail end of their career. It's a weird time in tennis. Um, and Sharapova's, unfortunately, was... Uh, her, Self-inflicted. Right? Authored by herself. I think the quote was, she's the sole author of her own misfortune. Oh my god. <laughs> Which was deeply bitchy, but not entirely untrue. Meanwhile, Lytton Hewitt is back out of retirement again. And this time it looks like he's here to stay for a little bit. He's going to be partnering Alex Diminar this week. And then he says, he announced on Twitter that, you know, I'll, I'll be playing a few more times this year. Uh, did he actually retire? He did. We had the big uh, yes. farewell send-off but in Australia. I can't recall ever seeing him not there. Like, he's, he has never gone away. Well, he's a Davis Cup captain. You know that they travel with... They travel on tour. We yeah. saw Conchita travel all the time and was there to fill in for Sumik with Muguruza all the time. Right, right. She's at all the match or was when she was Fed Cup captain at all the matches on site for all the Spanish players. That's the kind of role that Leighton has mm-hmm. filled since his retirement. And he's obviously hitting with these guys. He probably just can't can't rid himself of the bug. <laughs> okay. I mean cool for him that said it's pretty unanimous that nobody's here for this return it seems i haven't heard one person happy about it <laughs> like everybody's just rolling their eyes i'm like wow like this mm. is a two-time slam champion yeah but that was like 15 years ago 17 years ago now to the this was all just preamble to what we wanted to talk about right <laughs> Which was a That's Serena. That's a lot of preamble. It is. Serena's interview with Christopher Clare for the New York Times, which as a critique from Deadspin stated, read nothing more than a promo for her upcoming mm-hmm. HBO special, which I don't think is without merit, <laughs> but still real bitchy. The Deadspin snark is just like, is it not? Are we not done with it? It feels very early 2000s. Gawker is dead, but we're still stuck with its children. I'm just, like, it's not cute. It's very 2010 for me. <laughs> not early 2000s. That's very specific. Yeah. Oh, well, whatever. Read Christopher Clary's article if you haven't surpassed your 10 free New York Times Because I sure <laughs> as hell am not paying Maggie Haberman's salary. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> And also read Deadspin's response by Laura Wagner, because as far as I'm concerned, it was complete garbage. So (laughs) there's that. (laughs) I actually liked Christopher Clary's piece, and I realized that it was in the mold of a celebrity profile. I guess you could say that it was kind of fawning. But at this point in Serena's career, her interaction with the media is highly curated. And she only does it when she feels like it. And the journalist, or when she has something to promote. Well, exactly. So the journalist is only going to get so much to work with, right? Serena was, uh, has been remarkably revealing and open since her pregnancy. She allowed cameras into her home during her pregnancy and after. She's put the baby all over social media she seems to be a lot more open than she once was. She was really closed off about relationships and all those things. Something has changed, but you're still getting Serena's version of Serena. And so if you're Christopher Clary, that's what you have to work with. (laughs) You know, you don't get this opportunity every day. He said he's worked for the opportunity to sit down with Serena for a long time 
He, when you say worked for, you mean he waited. He, well, want, he, waited. he wanted it. He's, you made you know, it seem like he was knocking on her door <laughs> every other day. It's been a while since he's interviewed Serena. She doesn't do this very often. And I think he, I don't know, I think he did a good job with it. I am far less charitable toward Mr. Clary with this article than you are. Mm-hmm. Okay. And my one of the big gripes I had with it was he lost me when he referred to the Indian Wells situation by bringing up Richard and saying, Richard said he heard so mm-hmm. and so. And I'm just like, in 2018, are we still at a point where we're talking about what happened as Richard said he heard, under the guise of journalistic objectivity. Yeah. Right? It was so telegraphed in the way it was written. It stu- stood out like a sore thumb. Who's going to be suing him? Indian Wells sure ain't su- su- suing him. Well, there's different ownership now. I... No, my point is, mm-hmm. who are you afraid of like putting right. off by being more direct about what happened? Mm-hmm. Right, it just seemed like a very roundabout, distant way to separate himself from what had happened. I do wonder, in the midst of this being a very personal piece on his part as well. Mm. You do have to wonder if an editor wrote that just to cover their bases. Yeah, I do. Yes, mm. possibly. I'm just saying I did not care for it. I didn't either. Uh, I mean, for these two legends in their field, boycotted this tournament for 14 years. I think we've been over this. Like, people are still looking for excuses and proof that it did not happen. And it's disappointing, as you said. Before we get into the Jan Tyriak stuff, the, the few nuggets that we were given by Serena were uh, Mackie, her elderly mm-hmm. Medicare trainer. Elder- <laughs> Mackie Shillstone. Says that she's 75% as fit as when she won the 2017 Australian Open. Which is pretty pretty good, I would say. Mm-hmm. And we've seen just from pictures, Serena's appearance is totally different from when it was even at Indian Wells. Yeah. And what we've learned as well is that she was dealing with mastitis during this period. She says she wasn't even really able to practice in between Indian Wells and Miami because... To be frank, her breasts hurt so much. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways to clear that up is to keep breastfeeding. Like, you can't stop breastfeeding. Right. She said that for a lot of women, they say that they're able to lose a lot of the baby weight by stop breastfeeding. But that wasn't an option for her because of the mastitis. And on top of that, it was physically painful while she was playing. And she claims now that it's totally cleared up, and that she has recently stopped breastfeeding and that coincided with this huge, rigorous training block mm-hmm. that she's been doing with Mackie Shillstone in the last month and a half. And these are the things that we just, having never had children, can understand the physical toil it's taking on on her. In between Indian Wells and Miami is when she was dealing with this mastitis, which apparently is incredibly painful. We didn't know that. She skipped her press conference after Naomi Osaka, and of course you get the typical complaints from certain members of the press and tennis Twitter. And my feeling was, oh my god, who cares? Like, I care even less than when Venus skips press. Serena just had a baby, you have no idea what she's dealing with. Like, if you're not going to give her a pass, who are you going to give the pass to? Serena says that she's still unsure if she'll be playing Madrid. She's currently at Glue's Academy in Paris doing some final tune-ups on the clay. Mm-hmm. She may still play Madrid. If not, she will definitely play Rome. Allegedly. Now on to the bombshell that was dropped in the middle of this article. <laughs> it was just placed there. But I had never heard this. Tyriac said was criticizing the state of women's tennis, basically. Saying... Our top champion is 36 and weighs 96 kilos or something. And it's not a good look. Which is like 200 pounds. Something like that. It's not a good look. So typical like misogynistic bullshit, criticizing Serena's weight. It's stuff that she's dealt with before and will continue to deal with. She said she would have to... The Tarpeshevs of the world, the T-Rex of the world, all these old European men 
the Raymond Moores, it's not just a European man. No, thing. of course it's not. not. But those two specifically, the Raymond Moore bullshit, like all these old men in tennis that feel that they can talk mm. any which way about the top women in the game. And specifically about a woman's appearance and her weight. Serena was presented with those statements by Christopher Clary, and she said that she looks forward to having a word or two with Juria. <laughs> she was actually taking off her earrings while she said that. Oh my God. And some people are saying, well, I hope she skips Madrid because Tyriac is the tournament director. I hope she does whatever she wants. Like, if she wants to play Madrid, she should. And she should also have those words with him while she's there. But if she doesn't feel like playing Madrid, then don't. She has dealt with these sort of statements from tournament directors, commentators, the elites of tennis for over 20 years. Like, she can handle it. And she can handle herself even more now that she's 36 years old, that she's got a lot of other stuff going on in her life. That and she can call on anybody to put you on blast. Right. If she so decides. She can call on Beyonce. She can call on Beyonce to boycott Romania and never perform there again. <laughs> I don't know how often Beyonce goes there, but... <laughs> don't hurt the good people of Romania because of what Jan Tyriac said. We'll finish the episode with another... Fuck, Mary kill. We did a Riverdale one last week, and it was suggested to us that we should do a Riverdale Daddy edition. Mm-hmm. All right. I see that you added one. You can't have four. It's I, not I allowed. Just, I just put the ones that I remembered. I don't remember who was on oh, it or okay. not. So it was FP... What's Jughead? What's, what's their name? Jones. FP yes. Jones, Sheriff Keller, and Fred Andrews who is played by Luke Perry of 90210. Oh, so it wasn't obviously. Daddy Lodge? He wasn't one of them? No, oh my God. No one would take that seriously. I see no difference between Daddy Lodge and Fred Andrews, honestly. <laughs> wow. None whatsoever. Okay, so for me, the obvious fuck is Sheriff Keller. Like, he is Daddy Realness. He's a little creepy and highly incompetent at his job, so I would never marry him. But, damn. He and Kevin are both thick. Oh my God. <laughs> um, Mary, I, mm, I don't know. I guess it would be FP. But he does live in a trailer. You'd be living and very dangerously. And he is part of a gang. There's nothing wrong with a trailer, but he is dangerous. And I would kill Fred Andrews because I just, I don't know. He's just kind of lame. You're going to have to do a better job than the Black Hood. <laughs> <laughs> and Luke Perry, I mean, you could tell way back then that Dylan would not age well. No. And he hasn't. No. Oh, boy. I get, this is very difficult for me because there is literally zero attraction at this point for either FP or Fred Andrews. Like really? None. It's zero. Skeet Ulrich. Yes, when they were at their finest in the 90s, absolutely. Mm, okay. But in their current state, I will have to pass. You, I will... But you have to choose. I will dig the grave while you kill them. How, how about that? No, you have to choose. Hmm. Fuck Sheriff Keller, marry Fred Andrews, and kill FP. Oh, okay. Uh, also acceptable. Wait, but we were supposed to do, um, what's his face? Veronica's father. That's what I'm saying. Daddy Lodge. Oh, that's Lodge. What is wrong oh, with you? Oh, I was thinking Betty's dad. Oh, my God. So you just destroyed, you oh, just I ruined, ruined the, the whole, whole thing. thing. No, I would kill him. I'd definitely kill him. So that's what I was asking. Which mm -hmm. of the four gets omitted then? I don't know. Fine, you kill two. I'll kill two. I'll kill Fred Andrews and Lodge. Well, I'm going to kill... Who is, what's his name, Mark Consuelos? Yeah, Mark Consuelos looks like he's roasted under the sun for too many years. Also, I really hope that Veronica kills her parents. Don't you? I hope they all die, including Veronica. No. <laughs> Veronica likes to play like she's innocent, and she's not. She's very much wrapped into she's that, too. She's not and that if you innocent. Are, and if you are going to be out here killing Archie Andrews, then... Who? Who's killing you Archie You killed him Andrews? on the last episode. 
Well, he's kind of a Nazi. My point is, if you're going to be killing him, you mm. best be burying him beside Veronica Lodge. No, no. I'll pass. Mm. So to be clear, it's fuck Sheriff Keller and marry Fred Andrews and kill Daddy Lodge and FP for me. For you. And I'm killing Fred and Lodge. Hiram. Hiram Lodge. How I do wonder, I do like the colorblind casting, but why, I don't know, why would they name them Hiram and Hermione? I just don't believe it. I re- it's from the comics. I, I got it. But this is the stuff that you worry about with Riverdale. <laughs> Very little about Riverdale is to be believed. And I'm hereby putting a moratorium on talking about Riverdale on this podcast because we've talked enough about Riverdale. Oh, I was actually considering making this an exclusively Riverdale podcast. After your reaction to the last episode? Why? What happened? You, exactly. You hated it. You've already forgotten it. It was terrible. If they if every episode is a musical episode, I would be with it. That too was terrible. I don't care what you want to say. <laughs> on that note, thanks for listening to episode one twenty one. Find us on Twitter. Um, I'm Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan at tennis underscore John. We're the Body Serve on both Twitter and Instagram. Till next time.